There it is. Page 11 in the Church Bibles. Reading from Genesis 17, 1 to 14. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant change anything how are we going now oh that's much better we'll see how we go if i stop talking you'll you'll know what's happened uh, it'd be great to have your bibles open at that passage you just got read we'll wander around a couple of those chapters and uh and just have a bit of a think about abraham in this uh, central section there's an outline that you would have received as you came in this will give you a fair idea where we're going as we uh, tuck into this part of the bible together and there's some funny uh funny you know, unusual sort of things about it aren't there a guy gets a name change at 99 years of age uh, circumcised at that age as well you know a whole lot of unusual things to our ears we've we launch into the middle of a section of the bible that doesn't always completely just gel with our cultural expectations so let me pray that god will help us hear what he's got to say to us through his word understand it and work it out for today as well let me pray Uh, father we do thank you there you're a god who speaks and we pray that we'll get this part of your word, that we'll understand how it, it uh, functions in the scriptures as a whole, but also in our lives, so that we might uh, honour, love, obey and serve you today. Uh, Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, are we, yet, uh, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? That's the question that parents of primary school age people hear when they get to the end of their street having undertaken an eight-hour journey, right? You know, you're sort of just 100 metres down, are we there yet? No, only seven hours and 59 minutes to go. You know, it's that sort of question. There's an impatience in the very young. 
Uh, but I think it's an impatience that can sometimes operate for believers. You know, you can be waiting on God, praying to him about something for years, in fact, and not necessarily see an answer to your prayer. And you keep going, come on, God, are we there yet? You know, it's that sort of feeling. It came home to me a, a little while ago when I visited a man who was in, in a nursing home. Uh, he was getting quite old. His body was frail. His mind was starting to go. It was a really frustrating stage of life to be at. And he said, I just want to go and be with Jesus. You know, that's what I want to do. Uh, but I can't work out why I'm going through this and why it is taking so long to get there. Are we there yet? If you get, a, if you get an insight into that sort of question, and especially if you're someone who finds it hard to wait for things, that is, if you're a millennial, this will be you for sure. But, you know, all of us actually struggle, I think, at different points, having to wait for things over a period of time. If you get that feeling, then you actually get what's going on here for Abraham and this part of the Bible. Uh, because when we turn to Abraham, as you did last week, Genesis chapter 12, if you were here, you see God calling a man to follow him, a pagan man, someone who wasn't no connection to God at all at that time, and he chooses him, plucks him out, and then makes certain promises to him. One of the key promises he makes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 is that Abraham will actually have many descendants, right? that he's going to have lots of kids and lots of kids' kids, you know, grandchildren, I'm doing my bit, but he was going to have lots of them, you know, and, uh, uh, and that would be his future. But in chapter 11, verse 29... We're actually given an insight into why this is going to be a problem. Because at that point we're told that Sarai, his wife, cannot have children. So he's married to a woman who can't bear children and he comes to chapter 12 and God says, you're going to have a stack of them. And so you've got that tension point built into the story right from the outset as he starts out. Then what happens from chapter 12 is that time drifts. Right? Time just, it just takes a long time. When you read the Bible, of course, we, we often just get the highlights and sometimes you lose track of the time it's taking. When you get to Genesis chapter 15, time has, we're, we're now some years later. And in chapter 15, verse 2, uh, we're told God appears to Abraham in a vision and Abraham says this to God, Sovereign Lord, you understand why he's calling him Sovereign? Sovereign Lord, you control everything, you, you know, that's your job, God. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. You've given me no children, just in case he didn't get it the first time. No children. So a servant in my household is going to be my heir. God, you have not done what you said you would do. And I am not a happy camper, right? And you sort of have an insight to that because we're talking about some years after it was promised. Abraham was 75 years when he received, 75 years old when he received the promise. Come on, God, let's not muck around here. But time is pressing on. And then, verse 4 of chapter 15, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. This man, that is Eliezer of Damascus, he will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And this promise of a son is the one that actually dominates these chapters, really, from chapter 12, even through to chapter 50, actually, 
the whole idea of how God will multiply this man's family and therefore the family of God at this point in time. So that's chapter 15. When we get to chapter 16, Abram and Sarah are thinking, man, this is still taking a long time. God said he would, the child would come from my body. And Sarah's thinking, well, it's not going to come from mine. I can't have kids. I know what we'll do. I'll give you my, my servant. She will become your sort of uh, surrogate wife and you'll bear a child through her from your body, just not mine. So that's what they do in chapter 16. And Hagar is the servant woman and Ishmael is born. The name means God hears. God hears. Ishmael turns up. But the thing is, this is a child of human ingenuity, not a child by the power of God. And time drifts on. By the time we get to chapter 17, the delay is just excruciating. Right? You pick it up in uh, verse 1 of chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old. When's he received the promise? What age? 75 years old. How old is he when Ishmael's born? Actually, we're told in the last verse of chapter 16, he's 86 years old when Ishmael's born. So in one verse in the Bible, we have 13 years just squeezed in between those two verses. 86, 99, and God hasn't said a thing for 13 years. That's the picture that we get here in this situation. Now he is 99 years old, and it highlights how, how powerless Abram and Sarah are. They go with Hagar, but obviously Ishmael is not the child. What will happen? All they can do at this point is wait. Wait for God to act. So what does God do? What does God do to give Abraham, or Abram as he's called at this point, confidence in himself? Essentially what he does is he speaks. That's what he does. You get it all the way through chapter 17 actually. Verse 1, the Lord appeared to him and said. Verse 3, God said to him. Verse 9, then God said. Verse 15, God also said. Uh, God speaks. That's what he does. My words, um, in general terms, are pretty flimsy, to be quite honest. So if I say to you, please stand, yeah, that's about it. If I say, stay seated, oh, that's working really well. You know, uh, you know like my words don't have much impact or power at all. That's the thing. But we know from what we read in the Bible that God actually achieves everything through his word. Back to Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, God speaks and by his word, the whole cosmos comes into existence. That's pretty powerful speaking. Right? That, is a, that is a word with, with content and power. The whole universe comes into existence. I, I can't even do anything with my hands. Right? I'm, a, I'm useless. We're so thankful that Richard's now our son-in-law, right? What happens when any Harrington male is confronted with a practical project that needs any skill, we all look at each other sort of dumbfounded and say, we ought to ask Richard about this. He'll be able to help. You know, that's, that's our solution now. I, th- I feel like my children have married well from my point of view, you know, like I've done, done well out of this. Uh, God, by his word, though, creates, achieves, accomplishes things. 
And that's the point. That's the reason why God speaks here, to assure Abraham. But I want you to notice what he says to Abraham. Verse 1 of chapter 17. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Now, we just skip over that and we think, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, but it actually, from one point of view, doesn't make sense. So literally, you know, God, Yahweh, speaks to Abraham and says, I am El Shaddai. It'd be like me saying, I am Paul Harrington. I am Vincent. You go, what? See, Vincent's my middle name. Yeah? And, um, and by saying Vincent, I'm saying, I am small, right? which is pretty accurate, actually, as it turns out. You know, like it's the, you know, words in, in the Bible have importance, but names in the Bible have enormous importance. So Yahweh, which is the Lord, that's what's translated as the Lord in the Old Testament, is saying, I am El Shaddai. What does he introduce himself by that name? See, what's, what's, what's going on here in chapter 17? In the, in the Old Testament, uh, this name, El Shaddai, which means God Almighty, it's always used of God when he is doing the impossible to keep his promises. Do you understand what, what God is doing here is saying, Abram, I've made you a promise that is impossible. But I am the God of the impossible. I can achieve the impossible. I am El Shaddai. You see, it's that content, it's the assurance that God will do. He is powerful and can do what he says he will do. He speaks. So what does God actually do to fill Abraham with confidence? What does he tell him is going to happen? You pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 17. He says, I'll make my covenant between me and you and greatly increase your numbers. Okay, so we're back to the children. You will have a family of a number of children. Notice what he says there, I'll make my covenant. It's a word that's, that's not used much at all. So if I talk to, you know, John Cronshaw, of course, he's legally trained, he goes covenant, you know, and his eyes just sort of get glinty, you know, because I've used a word that he's familiar with. Most of us don't use that word much at all today. It has that sort of legal context. It's first used uh, here in Genesis back in chapter 15, verse 18. We're told there that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, the idea of a covenant is a bit like a contract, but it's different. So we are familiar with, with contracts, okay? Who has a new car, right? Who's bought a new car in the last 12 months? Anyone here done that? You're not owning up to it? Yep, yeah, what sort of car? A Nissan Pathfinder, okay. So if, Chris, if I said to Chris, okay, I'd like to make a contract with you, Chris, right? you are going to sell me your Nissan Pathfinder and I will give you $2,000 for it, all right? Congratulations, right? See, but that's the nature of a contract. We're equals, all right? He has a car, I have money, and we do an exchange. He gets all that money for this car and I get his Pathfinder, okay? Nature of a contract, done between equals, both parties benefit in some way, all right? He'd probably benefit a little more if he was selling it on the open market, but because I'm a friend, I've done very well out of that deal, okay? So that, that's a contract. Contracts are different to covenants, okay? Uh, a covenant is not between equals. 
For example, if you have a, um, a teenage son or daughter who's on their peas and they come to you as a parent and say, I would like to borrow your car, right? Then you're entering into a covenant with your child. You don't know you're doing it, but you are. You're entering into a covenant because you say, I will lend you my car. Now, do you get as a parent any benefit from lending the car? No, right? Definitely not, all right? So uh, no benefit at all. But what you can do is you can attach conditions to the covenant, right? Drive safely, be home by 12, don't drink, drive, you know, or whatever you, you actually put into it. They're not, it's not a contract because you're not really benefiting, but you can have stipulations attached to your gift, if you like. Notice here, that's what God is doing with Abram. He commits himself to Abraham in certain ways, and there are obligations on Abram's part. Okay, let's look at the details. God says, as for me, verse 4, you'll be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, your name shall be Abraham. Now, this name change is significant. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. Now, can you imagine? Here we have Abram, 99 years old, and he goes down to the pub to catch up with his mates, and his mates say, Abram, good to see you. No, he says, I've changed my name. It is now Abraham, right? Exalted father to father of multitudes. And he doesn't have any kids, you know, like the whole pub just starts snickering, you know, except it's a bit sad. Yeah, it's it's that sort of, it's an interesting situation that's going on. But of course, what God is doing is saying, your name change is significant in terms of my commitment to deliver on it, okay? He says, I'll make an everlasting covenant. Verse 7, I'll establish my covenant between me and you your descendants after you for the generations to come. This uh, commitment God is making will extend right into the far distant, even eternal future. That's what we're being told. And he says, I'll give you an everlasting possession, verse 8. The whole land of Canaan will be for you and your descendants. God makes a covenant committing himself. But what does God expect in response? What obligations? Well, as for you, says God, verse 9, you must keep my covenant. You must keep my covenant. All he's saying at this point is you must trust and obey. You must believe the promises I've made to you. Verse 1, you ought to walk before me and be blameless, not sinless, but dedicated to God, set apart for God. And he gives... Abram a covenant sign in verses 10 to 12. Every male shall be circumcised at eight days old. This um, is a sign of the covenant. Um, I wear a ring on my ring finger, which is a sign of my marriage to Sue. Right? It is not my marriage to Sue. This ring is not my marriage. But it indicates that I am married to Sue, who is here today. Same with circumcision, it is a sign or a mark of God's commitment to Abraham and his commitment to deliver. Uh, For this people to actually be circumcised, for the males to take this step, indicated that God had set them apart for his purpose. But also reminded them of their obligations. And we're told later in the chapter, verse 23, 
that all the males were circumcised that day. Okay? So you see, uh, you see here through the, this section, God interacting with Abraham, affirming his promises, uh, guaranteeing that he'll deliver uh, certain obligations on Abram's part to comply with the covenant, and we're at this point. So I guess the question I want to ask you is, so what? Okay, interesting history lesson of people of God. How does this connect with us in some way? So the remaining few minutes we have, I just want to explore this, the nature of what about us? How do we learn from this situation? Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. If if you haven't got a Bible, no need to turn there, but just listen to how uh, the Bible connects Abraham and Jesus. It puts those two together in terms of the promises of God. Hebrews 9 verse 15. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Okay, so we've got this new covenant with Jesus and there's reference to the first covenant which is the covenant with Abraham. He ties those two together. Promises made to Abraham are ultimately fulfilled by God through Jesus. Now, how does God do that? What's the connection? How is God's covenant with Abraham fulfilled in Christ? It really relates back to the question of why does God call Abraham? Why does God make promises to Abraham? What does God expect to get out of making promises to Abraham? And you understand God gets nothing out of this. This is no contract he makes with Abraham and it's no contract that he makes with us. It's not between equals and in the end it's not dependent upon what we contribute to the contract or the arrangement because it is a covenant where God just gives generously. So why does God give generously? Why does God do that? Go back to Genesis 12. Why does God call Abraham into a relationship with himself? And often what you do is you go scratching around for what set Abraham apart as a, someone that God would want to be in a relationship with him. But there's nothing. Remember back in chapter 12, by the time he gets to the end of the chapter, Abraham has moved into Egypt and, he's, you know, and his wife becomes one of Pharaoh's wives to protect himself from harm. Right? That's a man you'd want to be married to, isn't it? No. Abraham is a rat bag, a sinful scumbag. That's what he is, like every single one of us in this room. Do you understand? That is the reality That's why God makes promises, because he is gracious, he is merciful, he is kind. Romans chapter 4 reflects on Abraham's relationship with God. It says this, if Abraham was justified by works, what he did or something about him, he had something to boast about, but actually not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And at that point, it's a quotation from Genesis chapter 15. 
God is committed to Abraham, not because of anything Abraham has done, but because God is gracious and good and he wants to bless him despite his profound faults. Friends, can I just say, it's exactly the same for us. Uh, why, Why can you get into a relationship? Why has God sent his son into this world to die on a cross and pay for the sins of humanity and rise from the dead and give us hope? Right? It's because Stephen is such a lovely man. Actually, I really like Stephen, but he's, but he's a rat bag. Right? Your pastor is a rat bag, just in case you didn't know. Right? It's, uh, that is because we all are. That's the nature of who we are as humans. And God and his kindness still take steps to call us into relationship with himself. The gospel in Jesus is all about grace, just exactly the same way as it was with Abraham. First covenant, Abraham, grace, 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 grace. New covenant, Jesus, grace, 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 grace. God has not changed. He keeps extending his mercy and his kindness. Friends, Christianity is not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done. Not what you do, but what Christ has done. Okay? Let me move on. The outline you'll see there. I've got a, I want to take up the question of circumcision. Uh, God commanded Abraham and all the males that were eight days old to be circumcised. So here's, here's my question today. Why shouldn't all the males be circumcised like under the old covenant, uh, you know, on the eighth day or at least at some stage, right? Now, let me say this is a question that for many of the males in this room, there is a bit hanging on it, right? A bit riding on the answer to this question. Uh, but, but why? It's, 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 how does the Bible work? How does it function at this point? Let me take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Uh, there, um, the writer is speaking of a day in the future, the new covenant day that we sit under today. And he says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul. You understand at this point he's predicting a circumcision which is not physical but rather spiritual surgery, internal surgery that transforms people to be able to love God and respond to him. Can I say that the Bible says if you are a follower of Jesus then God has already conducted that spiritual surgery on your heart. Right? If you say, I'm a Christian, it's because you are circumcised at the heart level, the internal, functional, responding to God level. God, the, only re, the only way you can be a Christian is if God has done that work internally within you. Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 to 13, emphasises this reality. Listen in. In him, that is Jesus, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature not with the circumcision done with the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. God works in our heart, convicts us of sin, forgiveness, so that we can be cleansed. And so when you go to a place like Galatians 6 verse 15, the Apostle Paul there at that point says, Outward physical circumcision is just a complete waste of time. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's past. 
Right? I'm not asking the medical question. You can talk to the doctors here about the benefits or otherwise of circumcision, right? But spiritually speaking, what we're being told is there is no need for circumcision at all. It has no value in any way. But often this leads to a different question. People then say, ah, but wait a second, is there a, a new covenant sign for Christians today? It's not circumcision, but under the new covenant in Christ, is there something that's equivalent? And normally what people do is they say, ah, baptism, that's the external sign that marks us out as God's people, and therefore Christians should be baptised. And in fact, in Colossians 2, there's that, you heard it, that reference to being, you know, um, buried with him in baptism and it is a common way that Christians throughout the ages have expressed publicly their faith in Christ but it is something that's caused a bit of tension over the years Uh, you know we have Antonio we've dedicated him this morning right Uh, but it's possible do you have infant baptisms here as well Stephen yeah so but it's possible in a month's time we might have a baptism of an infant uh, at that stage or in a month's time we might have the baptism of an adult now, I reckon I could pretty well divide the room on this one without too much trouble about what we think, you know, whether we should have infant baptism or not, and should we have full immersion, you know, uh, when someone gets baptised, they need to be dunked underwater, can we just splash it on top of their head, how much water counts? Uh, uh, you know, I think I could have, I'm probably going to have a few discussions with you over morning too, I suspect, just having even raised the issue, because you will come and convince me of your view on this one, and I'll do my best to convince you, you know, it'll be good, it'll be fine, feel free to do it. But it is an issue that has caused a level of division and tension. Let me make a few comments about it. Uh, Firstly, let me say it is a sign. Baptism is a sign that points to a reality. This ring is my marriage. No. My marriage is my relationship with Sue. This signifies it. What is baptism? Baptism. It is a sign that points to a reality. So if we're smart, we won't get too caught in the sign rather than the reality. See, smart people who read their Bibles will be careful about how they enter into this debate and be very wise about how they go about it. Let me say the sign of baptism points to the work of God. Understand that baptism does not make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Right? It just does, doesn't work that way. Right? Baptism does not convert you. In fact, the only reason we would ever baptise anyone is if there is conversion. That is, as an adult, we are not going to baptise someone so they become a Christian. We baptise someone because they're a Christian. Okay? So how can baptism in some way be adding to their salvation? Well, obviously can't. Well, even by definition, that's pretty clear. When it comes to infant baptism, it's all, all tied up with this idea of covenant, God's commitment, and we would never baptise anyone here, anyone's child here, unless they profess faith in Christ. They're converted. God has done his work in their life, and therefore we do it at that point. Now, I'm comfortable for us to disagree about the merits or otherwise of that, Uh, infant, adult, that sort of thing. We could have a good discussion about that. And I think there's been stacks of abuses of infant baptism, like there have been stacks of abuses of adult baptism, to be quite honest. But in both cases, no one's getting converted. 
in both cases it signifies a work of God and a trust in his promises at that point. So let me say that that is the point I'm making. Baptism does not save, therefore do not ever fight over the sign or misunderstand it or think it has more significance than it does. We're never saved by our obedience or our works. A covenant is all about trusting and obeying God, the God who has provided everything we need. Let me just make a, a final point as we go through this passage, thinking about application. And it's the point I started with. It's about trusting God while we wait. Abraham waited for 24 years from when he was called by God and promised that Isaac would be born to when Isaac was born. 24 years. That is a long time for God to turn up. God made other promises to Abraham. He promised him land, that land of Canaan. He promised Abraham that he would both be a blessing to many and be blessed by many. By the time he died, God had promised, remember, Abraham, descendants more numerous than the sands on the seashore. How many descendants does Abraham have when he dies? Pretty well just one, actually. We aren't too far. How much land has he got? He's got the land in Canaan that he buried his wife in, that he was going to get buried in, a plot, ceremonial plot for getting buried in. How much blessing has he been to other people? Well, have a look through this story and you'll see it's a pretty mixed bag, to be quite honest. Here's a man who dies, trusting in the promises of God, but anticipating that they're going to be filled at some stage in the future. He has a clear promise from God. When you go to a place like Ephesians chapter 1, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are told that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We we have all the gifts from God in terms of our relationship with him. We have those now. But we also live in that age between the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension and his return. We live in that period of time. And if you go to a place like Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament, you know that is a time of tension. You know it's a time when followers of Jesus, they suffer now as we wait for glory. You know that creation, the world around us, is subjected to futility. We know what it means to endure sickness and heartache and depression, relationship struggles, grief because of death. We know we live in that period. But we also know we struggle in hope. I don't mean sort of faint, sort of vague hope. I mean the hope that rests on the promises of God that he will fulfill all the promises he has made to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just not yet. There will be that day of that final adoption, the redemption of our bodies. But we live in that period where we wait patiently and by faith. It's not vague though. It is strong and it is concrete. Uh, One of the favourite men, older men at Trinity in the city that I developed a relationship with is a guy called Tom Bednall. Uh, Tom and I had this unusual uh, connection. We both had the birthday on the same day. Not much, but uh, he was was about uh, 40 years older than me, I think. I think that's what it was. 
And over the years, we developed this relationship. And Tom, when he was in his late 80s, he went off to Queensland with his daughter and her family uh, to a beachside spot to catch up with them. He, one day, he was out on the beach walking and he had a stroke, right, late 80s, and, uh, and just collapsed on the beach. By himself, he was walking. And I said, mate, what happened then? He said, well, I, I couldn't move. And he said, I thought I was dying. I said, so, you know, what were you, what were you thinking? And he said, well, I thought if I'm dying, Jesus will come soon, you know. And so I, I started looking around for Jesus. And I said, what happened then? He said, Jesus didn't come. So I figured I wasn't dying. <laughs> and eventually, eventually the ambulance people turned up and I went to hospital. And now I'm just recovering from my stroke, you know. It was just a, it was a lovely statement of a man who was trusting in the future hope he had in Christ that gave him an extraordinary freedom as he lived his life in the present, trusting in the promises of God. Tom's gone to glory. He's with Jesus and he's, um, he's much better off. Much better off. Friends, we have the word of God, just like Abraham did. In the scriptures, God has spoken to us with absolute clarity about what he promises and what our hope is and where that rests. Why has he made those promises to us? For no reason at all. Except that he is gracious. It flows out of his character of mercy and kindness towards us. That's the only reason. And for our part, we are to trust in this gracious God. This God who is also called El Shaddai, Yahweh, who is powerful to keep his promises. We rest secure in his word in a changing world. Right? That's his promise to us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you're a God who makes promises, not for the sake of hearing his own voice, but because those promises secure us in our relationship with you, clarify to us how we have a relationship with you and give us secure hope for the future in terms of how you will deliver as you have in the past. And Father, we pray for our part that you'll help us to rest on your promises, uh, to rest securely in what you've done, Keep remembering it's nothing to do with what we contribute. It's a covenant, it's not a contract. And Father, we pray that in your kindness we'll keep confidently looking to the future and our eternal rest with you, all based on your promises to us in this new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.